Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything, even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. It is halfway through the week. I hope all of you guys are having a great week. That turned into a much more interesting night of basketball than I expected. Coming into tonight, obviously, you're thinking, 
2-3-1 series, team at home, significant favorite, going to be a relatively boring night of basketball. You know, the kind of boring night that would lead to folks in Lakers land leaking defamatory things about their teammates and compatriots and trying to take advantage of the slow news cycle on today. But what ended up happening was a very, very, very interesting Game 5 between Denver and Golden State. And I think Golden State was in a lot more trouble there than people realize. We are going to break that down. We're also going to have a What I Learned segment about the Bulls and the Bucks. We're going to get into the story that was released um, on Bleacher Report about some of this Lakers drama. And then at the end, we're going to do a mailbag. So I need all of you guys who are listening to do a couple of things. Please hit the subscribe button to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our shows. And then if you have any questions that you can ask, literally anything about absolutely anything, drop them in the chat. And if we have time, we will get to them at the end. But let's start with Golden State and Denver. So. Interestingly enough, <clears throat> this series was starting to take on a little bit of a feel similar to Toronto and Philly. You know, we did a theme last night in the show that styles make fights. But not just that styles make fights, it's about which style wins the fight. Because just because one style has an advantage over another, usually that has something to do with which style is playing better, not necessarily the style in and of itself in a vacuum. Golden State <clears throat> has a bunch of advantages over Denver, particularly in overall talent and skill level, right? No one's debating the fact that Golden State has significantly more skilled and capable perimeter players than Denver does. But Denver has a huge advantage in this series too, and it's interior size. Not just on the interior, actually perimeter size as well. Guys like, you know, guys like Will Barton can cause a problem on the perimeter with his length and athleticism. They're a big and strong team. Austin Rivers is another guy who's very, very good and physical defensive guard. They have physical advantages in this series. And early on in the series, Golden State held up really well under that physical onslaught and had a lot of success and took a 3-0 lead. But what happened in Game 3? It was close. It was very close. And Steph and Draymond each made a key play down the stretch of the game to pull that one out. Very similar to what Joel Embiid did to the Raptors in Game 3 up in Toronto. But in those games, Game 3 in Toronto and Game 3 in Denver, Denver and Toronto figured some things out and started to inflict their advantages on who they were playing. And then you saw Game 4 swing the other way. Wins for both teams, right? So now you got a Game 5 on your home floor. Toronto went into Philly and played the same brand of basketball that they played at home, and they kicked their ass. Now, Golden State is not as, you know, I'm not even sure the right word to use here, but Golden State is, is more experienced, battle-hardened, and prepared for something like this than Philly is. And so when Denver came in tonight and did the exact same thing, just playing that physically imposing brand of basketball, Golden State faltered a little bit, but they had the mental toughness to push through. I tweeted out twice during the game that this was quickly turning into not a must-win, but as close to a must-win as it could be for a team that's up 3-1 in the series. The reason why is you're heading to Denver next, and these advantages, these physical advantages – it's really difficult to regain control of that situation. Look at Phoenix last year. Phoenix, very similar situation. 
they hold up really well under the Giannis and Drew Holiday onslaught in games one and game two, right? And then it just started to wear on them a little bit. Everything got a little bit tougher for them on both sides of the floor. And suddenly Milwaukee had the advantage in their physicality. And it was impossible for Phoenix to regain that advantage. That because, like we talked, another theme from last night, the difference between what's in your control and what's outside of your control. You know, your perimeter skill, guys like Jordan Poole and Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and their ability to create shots off the dribble and knock down difficult jump shots, there's a chance element there. Does the shot go in or does it not go in? And if it goes one way or the other, it can swing the outcome of a game. But if you are a physically dominant team, that is a very dependable tool to have in your toolbox. And I thought Aaron Gordon in particular set the tone. So Golden State starts small and they go with their best lineup, right? The death lineup number two or death lineup number three, whatever you want to call it. Steph Clay, Jordan Poole, Draymond Green, and Andrew Wiggins. And on the very first possessions of the game, Aaron Gordon just put his head down and started driving to the basket. Draws a foul on, on Draymond Green, gets an offensive rebound and draws a foul. Then he drove to the basket on Clay Thompson and drew a foul. Nikola Jokic was bullying his way inside. Draymond had a foul already. Almost immediately, Steve Kerr had to audible out of that small lineup and go big. He brings in uh, uh, Kevon Looney to try to get some size in there, and it ended up being something they had to navigate the rest of the night. All game long, Denver was being so, so aggressive to the basket. They weren't making shots from the perimeter. That wasn't their advantage in this game. It was just putting their head down and going to the rim. And Steph had a rough game in the first half. Definitely got it going and, and saved the day in the second half. We'll get to that in a minute. But Steph had a rough night in the first half. Jordan Poole was having a rough night. You know, everyone on Denver's got it clicking. And next thing you know, it's like we're down 10 in the second half. They've been the better basketball team over the last two and a half games. We might be in some trouble here. And that's why I was saying it was a must win. And to Golden State's credit, they reached down deep and they got it done. You know, Draymond all night long, I don't remember how many rebounds he finished with, but I think he might have had zero or, or barely more than that. And it's because all night long, he was fighting his ass off on just boxing dudes out. And Golden State was getting killed on the offensive glass. And, you know, there's this interesting dynamic with, uh, with rebounding that I think led to the key substitution at the end of the game. So I don't know if you guys noticed, but Jordan Poole was absent down the stretch of the game. It ended up being Gary Payton that closed, and there were two reasons why. Part of it was Monty Morris drew a couple of fouls on Jordan Poole because he wasn't sliding his feet well on the perimeter and he was getting beat to the basket. Again, young guard. Young guards typically are going to take a while before they really pick up the details of defensive basketball. So I'm not worried about Jordan Poole in the long run, especially in the Golden State system. He'll be a fine defensive player. But Denver was attacking him, and so they went to Gary Payton. And another big reason why they went to Gary Payton was the rebounding. So if Draymond has zero rebounds because he's locked in box outs all night long, how is it that you secure defensive rebounds? It's crashing. you got to have people come flying in from the perimeter to grab rebounds. I thought that was a <clears throat> a big part of uh, why Otto Porter Jr. was getting as much playing time as he did. He was coming flying in and grabbing rebounds. Gary Payton Jr. coming flying in to grab rebounds. 
and they finally started to get some stops down the stretch of the game. And then Steph was aggressive to the rim. And this was the key difference. In the first half, Denver's defense was super aggressive on the perimeter. Every time they called a ball screen, they were trapping the ball screen, and the roll man was wide open, and Golden State was missing that pass a lot. And then when Jordan Poole and Steph and Clay and all those guys were dribbling, Denver's defenders were pressing up into them and taking away their three-point shooting, and they had to drive past them. And part of the reason why the first half was so sloppy was they weren't hitting the roll man, and they weren't attacking that overly aggressive perimeter defense. About a pivotal stretch of the game there in the third quarter, Steph got hot, made some threes, got them back into the game, and then down the stretch of the game, it was Steph Curry putting his head down and going to the rim, and he was icing the game at the rim. But uh, a huge... Huge, huge performance from Gary Payton Jr. We've talked a lot about him on the show in recent weeks. I obviously have a, a personal attachment there. I played against him a bunch in college and have a bunch of mutual respect there. And he, he made his living in college as a playmaker. That's what made him so good in his second year at Salt Lake and in his year at Oregon State. And he was just the perfect guy to have out there down the stretch because he, one, was making his wide-open threes. Two, he could set screens and roll to the basket and make smart decisions because, again, he's had so much experience as a decision-maker. Had another play where he cut along the baseline and had a beautiful shovel pass to Draymond Green for a dunk. Just a monstrously impactful, arguably, again, some Golden State fans might disagree with me here, but I thought this game was super pivotal to close the deal tonight to prevent going up to Denver where you're probably going to lose because they're playing better basketball than you right now and they're pulverizing you physically. And then a game seven, anything could happen. And just an absolutely monster performance from Gary Payton Jr. Now looking forward, because this is where it gets interesting. Denver pulverized Golden State with a size advantage, but they just didn't have enough skill to capitalize. In the middle of the third quarter when Steph got hot, if you guys remember... Golden State transitioned to a box and one. They put Clay Thompson on Jokic, and then they put basically two guys at the elbow, two guys at the block, and it's a zone essentially with those four guys, and then Clay Thompson stays glued to Jokic. There's some wrinkles in there, like if Jokic set a ball screen, they would just switch, and then Clay would go into the box, and like Wiggins or whoever it was would then take Jokic. But during that stretch, as the, the gimmicky defense wasn't working. It was getting stops, but only because Denver was missing shots. They were making fantastic reads out of that box in one and getting wide open threes. And during that same stretch, when Denver was missing those wide open threes, Steph got hot, made some threes, got the game close, and then they were able to close the deal late. But what concerns me is, again, you saw a matchup, a physical mismatch in terms of size, damn near allow a Denver team that has a significantly, they, they are especially on the perimeter at a massive disadvantage with talent. And they damn near push this series to six games. And so the issue is when you get to a later round, let's say Memphis next round, when you're dealing with guys like Jaron Jackson Jr., who's a monster, when you're dealing with guys like Brandon Clark, who arguably stole game five from Minnesota offensive rebounding, Guys like Desmond Bain, who are huge at their position. You know, John Morant is skinny, but he's very, very athletic. Memphis is going to present a lot of those same types of size mismatches in conjunction with a lot more talent. And so, you know, I'm not, I still am, I would probably, I want to dive more into this series before I make an actual official pick. 
and I'm, but at the moment I'm leaning Golden State because I'm going to always trust their experience and how many times they've been in this type of setting. And as big as Memphis is, they don't have a Jokic. And obviously Jokic was a huge factor in this series in Denver's ability to inflict with their size. But I think that's going to be a very, very close series. Memphis is going to have a lot of advantages. It's going to be interesting. But one last shout out, I got to give it to Steph. Steph had a rough night in the first half. Like I said, everything was trending Denver's way. For basically up until that fourth quarter, for the previous two and a half games, Denver was playing better basketball, or two games or so, whatever it was. Denver was playing better basketball. And so things were looking dire. I mentioned on Twitter it was practically a must win, and Steph treated it like a must win. And he made all the plays down the stretch to win that game. Just a monstrous, savvy veteran, refuse-to-die performance from Steph Curry. Really quickly, I wanted to touch on Bulls-Bucks, just for a minute. That series went just about exactly as I expected, with exception of the random Game 2 performance when uh, DeMar DeRozan went absolutely nuclear down the stretch and shot them out of the game. But aside from that, it went basically exactly as I expected. uh, uh, The Bucks gave up a gazillion wide-open threes, They gave up, I believe, just under 22 wide-open threes per NBA.com from games one to game four. Um, Obviously, they haven't updated the metrics from tonight, but that was the most wide-open threes that was given up in the first round. Game five, they gave up 52 threes, and Chicago was only able to make 15 of them which was like in the like 28% or something like that. So what did we say before the series? Chicago's not a good three-point shooting team. They're not even good at generating three-point shots. Milwaukee's defense gives up three-point shots. What's going to happen? Well, it went exactly like that. Here's the trick. In the first four games, Chicago shot just over 30% on wide-open threes. Boston shot over 40% on wide-open threes against the Nets. Much more skilled team a team that's prepared to knock down threes. They knocked down, I think, 42% of their threes just out of the left corner, which is going to be the three that they get most frequently in their offense against against Milwaukee. So this next round is going to put that Milwaukee defense to the test. A Milwaukee defense that succeeds against teams that relentlessly pressure the rim but don't know how to make you pay from the perimeter. And so I, I... We'll get more into the series at a later date, but as good as this, as dominant as this first down or this first round performance was from Milwaukee, I can't say that I did learn much because it did look like the same defense from the regular season, which was an average defense, a defense that dominated the painted area, a defense that dominated on the defensive glass, and a defense that gave up a million wide open threes. And that's why they were an average defense. Well, Boston is going to take the look at, did you guys see Giannis tonight? I think he made 10 of his first 11 shots or something. Literally just dunking all over them and getting whatever he wants in the paint. Chicago is incapable of making Giannis work hard the way that Boston is going to. That's going to be a much more interesting series than people think. We will get deeper into both of those series, Golden State second round series and uh, Milwaukee second round series as we get further along. Here in a minute, we're going to talk about this Lakers drama before. Here's a word from our sponsor. The playoffs are here, and you can make every game feel like Game 7 on FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. FanDuel is hooking you up with free bets throughout the playoffs. 
It doesn't matter if you're a new customer or already have an account. Just be sure to check out the app for exclusive weekly same-game parlay promos. FanDuel has so many ways to play, and best of all, when you win, you'll get paid faster than a fast break. New to FanDuel? Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code Jason T. Once again, that's promo code Jason T. Hibernation. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T. R-A-F-O-L dot com, promo code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code HOOPS. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Something I've always been a big believer in. When you try to take projects on yourself, you usually don't know what you're doing. You usually end up making mistakes, and it can be a big headache. And so not only can a professional from Angie get the job done more efficiently, but they also are people that you can support within your community as local businesses. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Consider Angie your hub for all your home improvement needs. They can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that will tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. And the app is free and easy to use. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Spring is here and it's time to get sprung with Blue Chew. That's right. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, 
but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code TIMPF, that's T-I-M-P-F, at checkout. Just pay $5 in shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code TIMPF, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. Let's move on really quick to some drama with the Los Angeles Lakers, who predictably, on one of the slowest days of this first round of the postseason, had some drama release. And again, with this kind of thing, you never know who it's coming from or what the ultimate goal is. But Eric Pincus from Bleacher Report wrote an article today talking about both the Nets and the Lakers and their situations with stars and their influences on the front office. And obviously, the article was targeting a bigger issue with the construction of super teams and NBA superstars playing a very, very hands-on role in the construction of rosters. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but there was a nugget in there about the Lakers specifically that I wanted to touch on before we get to that point. So, from Eric Pincus, quote, But James certainly has a strong influence on the Lakers' decision-making. Multiple sources indicate that the team's front office is internally blaming pressure from Clutch Sports Group, representing both James and Davis, for Westbrook. That may be an epic level of passing the buck. An NBA team should consider its star's wishes, but ultimately make the best decision for the team. End quote. Little bit of a, a personal opinion there from Pincus at the end that I 100% agree with. I cannot take credit for this specific take because it comes from my friend Harrison Fagan at Silver Screen and Roll. But he said it this morning, and I thought it was a perfect encapsulation of this situation. You know, it's fine for the Lakers to take credit when they get the trophy. In 2020, I didn't see any reporting or any leaks from Rob Palinka or from Jeannie Buss about how actually it was LeBron and Clutch Sports who pushed for the necessary moves to build a championship-winning roster. But now that things are going south, they're wanting to lead you guys to believe that LeBron and, and Rich Paul held these guys at gunpoint to make the Russell Westbrook deal. And that's ridiculous. Now, you guys know how I feel about stars getting involved in personnel decisions. It's the same thing I said about Rob Palenka during all this drama from the beginning. You know, in order to be a general manager in this league, you have to have a certain amount of dedication to diving into film. Because player evaluation, it's just like all of you guys as casual fans. If you turn on the right game and you watch Malik Beasley from the Minnesota Timberwolves, you might think he's a max contract player. There are days where he looks like Bradley Beal out there. But then there are other games when it's not so much. And that's the job of the GM. You have to consume enough total like content of one player to have a clear picture of what they actually are like on a day-in, day-out basis. You might have to look at them in different circumstances. It gets even more complicated when you're looking at younger players. 
like before they make it to the league because then you've got to consider you know are they at a college program that's adequately you know that's running a, a professional enough style of program to capitalize on what this player and his talent brings to the table it's a difficult job and so i have a problem with guys like lebron and guys like kd being more hands-on because they don't have the time to actually evaluate players properly. So I agree from that standpoint. But at the same time, no one did point a gun at Rob Polinka and make him make that deal. You guys made the decision to allow whatever ask Clutch Sports had in this situation. And so as a result, trying to turn the blame on LeBron is ridiculous. If that's the case, let's go ahead and pull down that banner. Let's take down that 17th championship banner. Let's rip it up. Let's make a new one, and we'll put Clutch Sports on it, 2020 NBA champions, and we'll hang it up in Clutch Sports headquarters because that's the type of lame-ass attitude this is, shirking the blame when things go wrong and accepting the responsibility when things go right, which I have a huge problem with. But that said, this has brought an interesting dynamic to the forefront in this playoff run. You know, you have three major star-run super teams in the league. You've got Kawhi and Paul George and what they've done with the Clippers. You have LeBron James and Anthony Davis and what they did with the Lakers. And you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie and what they did with the Brooklyn Nets. And all three of those teams secured precisely zero playoff wins this year. Zero. So the question becomes, is this mold a failure? Is it time as a league to move beyond that mold? Kind of reminds me in the NFL and a little bit in the NBA of like the coach GM concept. There was a time period where a lot of the top tier coaches in both leagues would demand decision over player personnel in addition to their coaching responsibilities. And then some years went by and it became pretty clear based on the results that even the best coaches, the hardest working coaches in the league, simply didn't have enough time to properly evaluate players and to make those types of decisions. And they were too intimately involved to be objective. And so as a result, now you don't see that very often. There are a handful of cases around the league. Like I know Greg Popovich still has some role in player personnel there in San Antonio, but it's rare. It's unusual. And more, it's more of like a consulting type of role. Should you go ask LeBron? Should you go ask KD, what do you think about this? Absolutely. That to me is just getting an additional opinion. Diversity of opinion is a great way to make sure that you don't walk headlong into a terrible decision. I agree on that, on that side of things. You know, Kevin Durant said in his post-game presser after game four, he's like, I just want to focus on the basketball. I don't want to be involved in player personnel. Now, whether or not that's true is another story. There's a whole narrative controlling side of this thing. But to me, that's the way that it should be. Do what you do best. Keep the main thing the main thing. Get somebody in the chair in the general management position. Problem is for the Lakers, they don't have that guy either. But get someone in the chair whose job it is every day to dive into the tape and figure things out there. And then the player, you're a basketball player. Figure out the basketball. That's all you have to focus on. That keep the main thing the main thing. So then the second question becomes, what about the assembly of superstars? Because you saw both teams, the Nets and the Lakers in particular, go after the third star in sacrifice depth as part of the process. 
Lakers send off key pivotal role players from their championship team to bring in Russell Westbrook. And the Nets send off key role players for James Harden that they in turn flip for Ben Simmons. And in that deal, they actually got a couple of role players in Seth Curry and Andre Drummond. So for them, it wasn't as much of a catastrophe, but you saw that happen. And I think there are two very specific reasons why I disagree with that strategy. I'm a big believer in the two stars, great role player depth, rather than three stars and veteran minimum contracts. And the two reasons why I believe in that is, one, there's a diminishing return with the third star. When you factor in the jobs that players have on the floor in a five-man lineup, especially when you get to the postseason and everybody bumps up their minutes and your best players are all playing 40-something minutes, there's a diminishing return for number three. Had, let's pretend everything went great for the Lakers this year and LeBron and Anthony Davis stay healthy and they make it to the first round. There's no way in the world if LeBron and AD are playing 42 minutes a game in a playoff game that you're going to have a great deal of on-ball responsibility for Russell Westbrook. That's just not the way the game works. Now, Russ also struggled in a lot of different ways, so I'm not alleviating him of responsibility in any sense in that regard, but strictly in the way that basketball works, being the third guy, you have less responsibility, thus requiring less talent. So it doesn't make sense to have a guy who's overqualified for that position unless you absolutely have to. And so I disagree with that strategy from that standpoint. That's the first side. The second part of it has everything to do with the way that defenses have evolved and how important it is now to have five guys on the floor that can capitalize on not being guarded. We talked a lot about this early in the playoffs. I said to you guys, NBA defenses are dangerously close to figuring out how to adequately double-team stars and rotate on the back end and take away easy open shots on the back end. It used to be that you could have a Wesley Matthews, a guy who could knock down spot-up threes, but not a whole lot else on that weak side corner. But now, teams are closing out on Wesley Matthews and getting there in time off of double-teams. So now what you need is guys that can attack closeouts. You need great offensive players off-ball to capitalize on that attention. And so having a third star and then having really like limited role players around them causes a predicament where now you have guys off the ball that aren't talented enough to capitalize on all that extra attention. This is why having, you know, two stars in great depth is a better model. Look at the 2020 Lakers. Look at how important KCP was attacking closeouts. Look at how important Alex Crusoe was. Look at how important Kyle Kuzma was. Look at how important Danny Green was. Having better offensive players in those roles that when every team is throwing the kitchen sink at LeBron and AD, they have lots and lots of opportunity and they're talented enough to succeed in that role. You saw there was a playoff game where Markeith Morris made five threes and they could throw the ball to Markeith Morris in the right matchup down in the post. There was a bunch of different ways to go about it. And so I think in addition to the idea of taking control back away from stars in terms of personnel decisions, they simply don't have the time to watch enough film to be educated enough to make those calls. But also get away from this idea that you need to amass high-end talent. If you have two guys that you can dependably throw the ball to to initiate offense, you don't need a third. 
Those two guys can figure out the give and take, and you're better off allowing them to be decoys half the time and take on the, the attention and let other guys go to work. Look at Jason Tatum. He's just taking double teams most times down the floor. It's guys like Marcus Smart making plays. It's guys like Jalen Brown making plays. It's guy like Grant Williams making plays. Al Horford making plays off of the attention that Jason Tatum is grabbing. It's a really interesting concept. I'm curious to see over the over the course of the next few years if you see more big threes form or if you see more teams take on the two-star role player type of concept. But that's that's just where I stand with it. I would go with take player personnel decisions away from the stars and build around two high-level players and get depth because you need quality players around them to make people pay when they are throwing the kitchen sink at your stars. Hi, it's Colin Coward. I started the volume to bring you some of the most authentic voices in sports. While you're here, make sure you hit subscribe. Thanks. All right, before we bring Carson on, oh, there he is. Before we bring Carson on, uh, forget, just like, don't forget, just like Colin said, hit that subscribe button. Also, we are going to do a mailbag. So if you have any questions about absolutely anything, please drop them in the chat. And if we have time, we'll get to them at the end. All right, Carson, what do you got for me tonight, man? We've got a game here called Real Question, Fake Question, Jason. And the way it works is we've got real questions from fans. And then we've got questions that I have come up with, which we're calling fake, which I don't know if I love the branding there. I think they're just as real, but that's besides the point. So I'll defer to you. Do you want to start with a real question or a fake question? Let's start with a real one. All right. So this is from George on Twitter. Do you think currently it's Boston versus the field in the playoffs? And if so, which remaining team has the best chance against them? Man, that the the news from Devin Booker really threw me for a loop. And I am absolutely stunned that they're bringing him back this quickly. First of all, like I, I understand the threat of New Orleans, but would you pick against Chris Paul with all of that talent at a home and game? Like I think they'll be fine. So like I would have I would have been more hesitant to bring Devin back. But let's and then also when he, now that he's back, it makes me nervous because hamstrings are like arguably the most re-injurable injury that an athlete deals with. But mm -hmm. let's accept, just for the sake of this question, that Devin Booker is healthy and going to be fine the rest of the playoffs. Coming into the postseason, I had Phoenix as a definitive number one and then a tier below them that Boston was a part of. So part of me moving Boston up was the Devin Booker injury, but also another big part of it was just how dominant they look on the defensive end of the floor. And so I think it's most likely that Boston runs into Phoenix in the finals. And then as I start to think about that matchup, like when you think about the way that Drew Holiday and the rest of the Milwaukee Bucks were able to really, really shut down Chris Paul, I think Boston's going to have some similar impact there. Yes, Drew, uh, yes, Devin Booker showed some amazing shot making versus Drew Holiday in that series last year in the finals. But I think this Boston defense is another level above that. So, like, I think I'd pick Boston over Phoenix, too. But if you're asking me which team has the best chance to beat them, easily it's Phoenix. They've got, they're the only team that has a talent advantage against them, in my opinion. But, like, man, like, I know everyone thinks I'm crazy, but, like, 
I think something special is going on with this Boston defense. I think the story coming out of that first round series was Brooklyn choking or Kevin Durant struggling and all the drama in Brooklyn and Ben Simmons and all that crap. But meanwhile, Boston just seems to be like a team that has captured some serious magic. So you mentioned the Suns element of this and the decision to bring Book back. You touched on it a little bit, but this is a fake question from me. Give us more of your thoughts on that decision. And do you think that that's just a bad decision flat out? I don't want to say it's a bad decision because you got to factor in the circumstance. Like, you know, what is it that I think it's, is it Steve Kerr? I can't remember who it is, but there's a famous NBA coach that always talks about appropriate fear. I think it was Steve Kerr actually. But like, I think if you have an appropriate fear of the Pelicans, which you should, they're dominating you on the defensive glass or on the offensive glass, excuse me. A huge part of their offense is Brandon Ingram and, and CJ McCollum attacking in isolation, and they had a really bad game in game five. So there's a version of this story where they go back to New Orleans, they bully you on the glass again, CJ and Brandon play better, they win game six, you come back to Phoenix, and then, I mean, I think I think uh, uh, New Orleans got it within seven, about halfway through the fourth quarter, if I remember correctly, last night. So... You know, there is, I think, an appropriate amount of fear here, and I think that's what's driving the decision. My thing is, like, it's kind of like Anthony Davis last year against the Suns. Like, rushing him back, it almost stands to do more damage psychologically to your team because what if Devin comes back and plays in Game 6 and pulls his hamstring again in the second quarter and you have to watch him limp off to the locker room? There's a massive psychological impact that that has on your team. When Anthony Davis... uh gave it a go last year in game six and his groin started hurting right away. It was a early first quarter. And I don't know if you guys remember, but this, the Lakers were extraordinarily flat the rest of that first quarter. Meanwhile, Devin Booker got hot. And next thing you know, they were down by like 20 or something like that at the end of the first quarter. So there's a very dangerous game that you play with bringing back a star that could potentially re-injure himself because there's the advantage of him potentially playing and, and helping your team, but there's the potential disadvantage of the discouragement that comes from him getting re-injured. I sincerely hope that that doesn't happen. It's just something that I'm worried about. You mentioned the appropriate fear. I believe that's a popism, but... Is it? Okay. Obviously, you are balancing those two factors that you're talking about against each other. But if you were to say this is what has to go right for the Pelicans to actually get out, like if they were to go and win game six and seven, what would sort of the key things be? And I know you say it's not particularly likely, but roughly how likely do you think it is that they could do that? I had them... I would say they have like maybe a 10% chance. It's just, the thing is, is when you know what New Orleans depends on for their offense, which again is Brandon Ingram kind of is like a point forward running a lot of ISO and high pick and roll. And then CJ McCollum kind of more in the Devin Booker role of just being a guy who's hunting for his shot. When you like Mikhail Bridges was devastating defensively in game five, almost everybody that he guarded was not, not just shut down, but shut down in a kind of resounding fashion. And so the concern there is I don't, I would give New Orleans roughly a coin flip chance to win game six. That's fine. But man, the, the, the chances that New Orleans goes into Phoenix and wins game seven are so close to zero that I think it leaves it pretty damn low. So I, I'd say maybe around 10%, but the only way that they pull it off is if CJ and Brandon catch a little bit of that LeBron Kyrie 2016 finals magic where just a couple, two, three games in a row where they just don't miss. And then, yeah, that could be the difference, but it's just very unlikely.
Yeah, I will say it felt like to me before game five, it was more of like legitimate even footing, but part of that was absolutely, you're right. They're so overwhelmingly dependent on that lead shot making. And BI had been like perfect. You know, I mean, he's 30 a game on ridiculous efficiency. And then you talk about Bridges defense changing some of those dynamics. So I'm, I'm with you there. Maybe I would put it yeah, a little it, bit real high, quick, but it's a tall task. Quick follow-up, and this has been the, the dynamic that I've talked about all season. What have I always told you guys? Like, yes, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are great, but down the roster, Phoenix is the most talented yeah. team in the league. Like, and guys like Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre Ayton have consistently been playing in roles that are much smaller than what their talent is capable of. And and you compare them to guys like guys like uh, an Herb Jones, for instance. Like, uh, compare him to like Mikhail Bridges. Like, in a tiny role. Herb Jones and Mikael Bridges can have relatively similar impact. Obviously, Mikael Bridges is a better player. But in a tiny role, there can be a relatively similar impact. All, all of a sudden, with Devin Booker out, Mikael Bridges is being depended on more as a shot maker. He was 12 for 17. I think he had like 34 points or something like that yeah. in game five. It was just a monster offensively. Like Herb Jones is not going to be able to get to that level. And so at the end of the day, like it's just so many things would have to go right. So many guys with the Pelicans would have to play above their ability. So many guys for Phoenix would have to play below their ability. I think the smart money is on Phoenix there. And I will say, you talk about the talent on this Phoenix roster. When the book injury happened, one of the biggest concerns that we discussed was that really high-level shot creation coming because Book is so clearly the apex guy, and outside of CP, there haven't been a ton of guys who have filled that role and who are really in like the prototype of ball handler, scorer, playmaker combo. But I have been extremely impressed. I mean, you mentioned the Bridges performance. He feels like, for the most part, the ultimate role player, just so good at fitting in, but really asserting himself. Aiden producing at that level, you know, on that efficiency has been extremely impressive. So you could argue Aiden's better than Valanchunas. Yeah, no, I think that that is, I think you would have to argue against that at this point. I mean, are you talking overall or just like offensive skill? Because I think overall it's... If two-way, two-way center. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, we've got another real question for you here, Jason. And you've touched on this a bit before, but how well do you think Boston's defense will work against Giannis? Will he be able to attack it more effectively than Kevin Durant? And without Chris Middleton... Do they have a chance in that series, which is now booked? This is from Almond Milk on Twitter. <laughs> so this is this is this is the million dollar question, man, and it's been something I've been thinking about nonstop over the course of the last week. I cannot freaking wait for this series. Did did they tell? Did uh, why don't you check for me while I'm uh, talking when when game yeah. one is? Because I'm so so excited for it. But uh, the the interesting thing here is, you know, Giannis and KD both have very different games, but they're structured in similar ways. There's like a bread in the butt, there's a bread and butter, and then there's like kind of like supplementary offense. You know, one of the things that Giannis, like KD, for instance, KD supplements his offense. I did a video about this earlier in the regular season. KD supplements his isolation offense with off-ball shooting, like movement shooting. Does a lot of like fighting for position and coming off of pin downs and taking like these 15 to 17 foot wide open pull-up jump shots that he makes like like more than half the time, and it's it's way it's his way of supplementing offense, his isolation offense with easy shots. Well, Boston completely took that element of his game away, but because of how physical they were and how willing they were to switch those screens and just basically grab him as he was coming off the screen, so the easy elements of KD's offense were completely removed. Well, Giannis, mm. he gets a lot of easy offense just with his physicality. So. 
whether that's in transition, just putting his head down and going to the rim, whether that's uh, another, it's offensive rebounding, but not just as an off-ball player, but like he'll pirouette into the lane and throw up a hook shot. And it's not really a high percentage shot, but Giannis knows that. And he just continues to bulldoze his way into the lane after shooting, grab the ball and go right back up with it and dunk it. Cause he's so much quicker off his feet than everybody else on the floor. And, and so he has all of those elements. And when I look at that, I think that Giannis, I don't think Boston's going to be able to shut off those parts of his offense. So I think Giannis is going to be able to get better, easy supplementary offense. But in the half court, when the game grinds to the halt, when Boston is in their set defense geared up on Giannis, I think Giannis is going to struggle just as much as KD does. So in summation, I think Giannis has a better series overall because of his supplementary offense, offensive rebound, putbacks, transition, things like that. So I think his counting stats will appear better. But I think at the end of the day, this game is going to come down to half-court execution. The series is going to come down to half-court execution. And I think people are way too quick to blame KD for how that went and not acknowledge the Boston defense. I think the Boston defense at many points in this series is going to make Giannis look not ineffective, but significantly less effective than he is going in other matchups. And so that's going to be the interesting dynamic here. But overall, he will fare better. I would I would be shocked if Milwaukee didn't get one game, but I'm leaning I'm not my final pick yet, but I'm leaning towards Boston in five, and I think it's going to overall be ugly for Giannis. So obviously, as we look at this matchup, the Celtics are exceptional in how many really high level defensive weapons they have. But I think an interesting question is who is the primary guy on Giannis in this series? Because you have obviously Tatum as that lead wing defender, but we've seen. Teams, when they have versatile, quick enough bigs, try to guard Giannis with those guys, and you do have a Robert Williams or a Horford. So who do you think is that guy who Boston should lean on most, or is it a combination? Just what do you think is their best approach in terms of personnel? So you always want to mix up coverages to keep guys off their feet. So uh, I, I would imagine I would imagine that there will be a bunch of different looks. My guess is they'll start with Horford. Horford is an excellent positional defender. He's a guy that yeah. doesn't reach. He slides his feet. He absorbs contact with his chest. He's kind of like your textbook positional defender. That's why he always does well against really, really big players. The trick is... It's going to be, I'm really curious to see what Ime Yudoka's strategy is in terms of double teaming. I think that, you know, because Giannis goes to a lot of like really aggressive spin moves and like pump fakes and pivots and things like that. I'd like to see them do kind of what Golden State did to Jokic a lot in this series and during the regular season, which is double on the counter move. So let him think he's in single coverage. Let him make that initial, you know, load up and, and, and get ahead of steam and go into Horford. And then as soon as Horford beats him to the first spot and he counter spins back, that's when you come with the help and attack the ball. I think, you know, uh, Boston did an amazing job attacking KD's handle all series long. That's why KD had so many turnovers and struggled so much dribbling the basketball. Well, KD... I mean, it's not it's not a, some sort of chasm. They're close, but Giannis is is not a fantastic ball handler in traffic either. So like, and it's not necessarily KD or Giannis's fault. It's a tall guy problem. You're just dribbling the ball yeah. further. There's less margin for error there, right? So the thing is, is like, I I would test Giannis's handle nonstop in this series and see if he can really truly dribble by sending help while he's in the middle of moves. That would be my strategy. I expect him to start with Horford. 
that I bet you'll see Grant Williams on him. Probably not Robert Williams because Giannis tends to utterly destroy slender centers. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that Robert, Robert Robert Williams is bigger than most people think he is, but I just don't think that's the perfect matchup there. I think he'd be better in a help side role. But I'm really curious. I think Ime Udoka is going to have a bunch of stuff up his sleeve, and, and, and I'm really interested to see what it is. Well, you mentioned the excitement for the series. It does tip at 1 Eastern on Sunday and will be live that night. Also, a little interesting yes, we will. thing here. We sent out a poll in the chat. 56% of people say they would take the Bucks to win that series right now out of our chat, which I think is very interesting. I think that's right. I think that's wild. I'm not saying you guys yeah. are wrong, but I vehemently disagree. I think yeah, I'm not implying. saying Milwaukee's I'm not saying <laughs> you guys are wrong. I'm not saying uh I'm not saying Milwaukee doesn't have a chance. They absolutely do. But again, I think there's a couple reasons why. Boston kind of like the Lakers, not exactly the most well-liked team around the league because they're the they're the two winningest franchises. So the other 28 fan bases hate them. So there's a lot of anti-Celtics bias. There's a lot of anti-KD and Kyrie bias that is leading people to kind of change their analysis of that series and make it more about them sucking and less about Boston being good. So I think the public perception of Boston is still pretty low. I don't know if you noticed this, Carson, but on FanDuel, I believe Boston right now is plus 460 to win the title. And I think they have the third best odds overall behind Phoenix and Golden State, which I think is absolutely wild. I Hopefully this series, if I'm right, which we'll see, I could very well be wrong and I've been wrong before, but if I'm right, I think in this series, people will finally start to understand just how special this Boston team is. Yeah, I think you, I mean, very aptly identified a couple of the key reasons that people are maybe underselling this team. I wonder if there's also just sort of a prove it element or maybe that like they don't have a consensus top five guy on the planet who's done it year in and year out but like I mean there's no denying that since I don't know exactly what point you would pick but the last 30 something games of the regular season through the playoffs the Celtics have been the most impressive team in the NBA and uh, I'm with you I think it's surprising that their odds are still that low especially now that they're healthy again I mean they are clicking and they are scary and I would also take them against the Bucks. I think five is you know, uh, that would be very impressive, but I don't think it's at all out of the question. All right. Really quickly, Carson, yeah. I have a question yeah. for you. Is yeah, Jason yeah, Tatum a top five player? No, I don't think so. I think that, I mean, we discussed this briefly. When he is playing at his offensive apex, it is like unbelievable peak scoring wing stuff with some of the playmaking and great defensive value. And like, that's an insane portfolio, especially when he's dropping 30 a night. I do still think, though, that over a full sample size, there are guys who are just more complete of engines when it comes to the scoring, playmaking combo who I would lean on. But also, there are guys who are more easily exposed. I mean, I'm a huge believer in a guy like Jokic, and I would never drop him out of my personal top five. But there are things that are more exploitable there. I mean, I, I think even... There's a lot of guys basically who I think have bigger holes in their game at this point than Jason Tatum. Like he can do his job on both ends at an exceptionally high level, but I don't think he's top five yet. I think we need to see him sustained. Like you said, when we discussed this a bit ago, this level for a longer time. Yeah, I got to stick to my own rule here. I'm not a big believer yeah. in rushing people up that list. I will say this Agreed. though. I would not be surprised if in our wrap up season wrap up pods at the end of June, if we're having a conversation about Tatum legitimately being a top five player, because you're right there, there seems to be with his newfound 
penchant for playmaking and yeah. and kind of absorbing the double team and and staying a threat after giving up the ball that kind of thing there's kind of there's they're, they're just they're starting to take shape as a player that doesn't have a lot of flaws like he's all yeah. he's not the same defensive player that Kawhi was at his peak but he's already a much better playmaker than Kawhi and and from the scoring standpoint like he doesn't have the the mid-range kind of like back to the basket game that Kawhi has but he's a better off the dribble three-point shooter so he's kind yeah. of like but this is I'll just leave it at this he's he's a lot closer to like Kawhi than people think that's amazing that you evoke that comparison because I was literally about to draw that myself and ask like what really how big is the gap between current Jason Tatum the level he's been playing at since all-star break where we've read off the stats before but it's just absolutely ridiculous scoring and a fit on absurd efficiency I mean 30 plus a night on 65 percent true shooting into these playoffs now he dropped 30 a game against the Nets and the playmaking was great and the defense is really great and it's like Kawhi is a top 20-something guy of all time in most people's eyes. And, you know, people view that as one of the most impressive individual playoff runs ever. And, of course, there are differences and there are things certain guys do better. But it doesn't feel like the gap is all that big right now. So he sustains this level. And I, I've always thought he is like an all-time talented guy. It's just been about making the game easier. You know, getting downhill more, getting to the line more, developing as a playmaker, passing out of doubles, all of these things that he's doing, consistently being really, really high level on the defensive end. And he's like got it all coming together right now. It's really pretty remarkable, I think. Value of reps, man. I don't know if you guys remember, was it last season that Kemba Walker was hurt to start the year? And like Boston really floundered because Jalen yeah. Brown and Jason Tatum became the primary initiators. And then they ship Kemba off and they bring in Dennis Schroeder. But then they ship Dennis Schroeder off. And like during that time period, Jason Tatum was kind of thrown in the deep end as the guy who was like the offensive fulcrum. And it got ugly a lot yeah. of the time for him. But again, it's the value of reps. And and yeah. I, I know we're ready to move on from Tatum, but like we could talk about this guy for an hour because he's such an interesting player. But I I think it was the value of reps and Again, I don't want to give him that credit until he gets the job done, but I do think he's trending in that direction. 100%. And it is fascinating. I mean, there are so many great scoring wings who come into the league as you know subpar playmakers, but just because of the product of having the ball in their hands so much, they develop. Like We have seen it from Book, who was basically had to be a point guard for a couple years, from Giannis. everybody, Kawhi, PG, Giannis, all these guys. It's just a product of, you know, Putting pressure on defense, having the ball in your hands a lot, they just improve that almost universally. And Tatum is a great example of that right now. All right. We've got another fake question. Warriors have now booked their ticket to the second round. They are still awaiting their opponent. So, Jason, who would give them more trouble, the Grizzlies or the Timberwolves? Oh, man, that's a super, super interesting question. <sighs> well, the the problem here, because I... Like just strictly from an X's and O's standpoint, I want to say Minnesota because Minnesota is such a good perimeter defense team, and but Minnesota is not a great rim protection team. Which a rim protection team would cause more problems for a team that likes to slash and attack the rim all night long. But Golden State's not really like that. Golden State mostly operates with a vacated paint, and there's just a ton of congestion on the perimeter. And if they usually can get past that barrier, it's like wide open layups. One of the biggest reasons why uh, Steph 
has one of the best interior finishing percentages for a guard is because he usually is shooting wide open because the defense is so far extended. Well, Minnesota, that's where they're at their best is in perimeter defense. But the reason why I think Memphis would be a tougher matchup is we just have enough experience watching them against Golden State, and they've consistently given Golden State issues. Like, just it's just a bad matchup for them on so many fronts. They don't have great, you know, they don't have anybody that can stay in front of Jaw. You know, they have a lot of big athletes that can punish them on the offensive glass. They're big on the perimeter, which is a huge part of why Denver's been so successful. So I think I lean towards Memphis. That's going to be a really really interesting series and it's going to be nasty it's going to be toxic there's going to be trash talk it's going to be that's going to be obviously it i talked before this playoff run about how this particular playoff run was going to be one of the most interesting in this era of nba basketball but like the second round fittingly enough is just going to have a bunch of super interesting series and that one's near the top of my list how much of a chance do you think the grizzlies have there it's 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 not 50 percent because i'm leaning towards golden state but it's close like i'd probably go like a healthy 40 percent like it's just the the golden okay like we talked about earlier memphis is nowhere near serious like in the Mm -hmm. same way that golden state recognized the threat of denver and closed the deal tonight memphis is the kind of team that would have lost that game because Memphis has had such a in and out focus through this entire playoff run. We've talked about it a lot on this show. So like part of me wants to lean on Golden State and their decision making and their savviness. But this is just a horrible matchup for them. And so the question is is the horrible matchup enough to make up for, you know, obviously Golden State having better perimeter talent? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a lot about Minnesota having a good half court defense. Memphis also has a pretty good half-court defense, with the exception of Jaw. He's the the one kind of weak link on that front. So I think, you know, Golden State's smarter. They have more experience. I'm going to lean on them in that regard, but Memphis has a legit puncher's chance to win because of the fact that it's such a bad physical matchup for Golden State. They're bigger at almost every position. And you know, and and again, with, with these kinds of things, Carson, it's always about like, a lot of it has to do with how long the series goes. It's so important for Golden State to steal a game in Memphis and then to win games three and four because they will need to end this series quickly. The longer these series with Golden State go, the more susceptible they are to physical mismatches. And that's going to be something that they have to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on it. I feel like the Warriors are pretty clearly the better basketball team, but you are right in that they would be physically and athletically outmatched. I do feel, though, that the level they have been able to reach defensively is so impressive. And just the shot-making right now out of Poole and obviously Steph and Clay, it feels like that's a lot for the Grizzlies to overcome just because it's like their half-court offense and their high-level shot creation. I mean, even compared to the T-Wolves, it's like if you were to tell me one team would be carried by their offensive stars to a win. Obviously, Desmond Bain has been really tremendous at times in the series, but he's not like that go-to bucket getter, initiator kind of guy. You've talked about that. I mean, he's a score within the flow, phenomenal catch and shooter, all this different stuff. And so it just feels to me like that is still an issue with Memphis that can be exploited, that if Jaw isn't otherworldly, you know, you're relying on an inefficient Dylan Brooks as a second guy or a Desmond Bain who, 
you know, it's just not really his natural role. Triple J is still every other offensive possession when he initiates it feel like he doesn't really know what he's doing. So I just feel like things are a little smoother, a little easier for the Warriors on that end right now. So I would probably put it closer to like 75% dubs, honestly. I feel like there's a bit of a gap there right now. Well, you're very confident. That's interesting. Yeah. You, the offensive fulcrum piece is interesting because like part of the issue in this series, Denver, has been mm-hmm. Jokic's ability to just utterly compromise their defense throughout the entire game so that even these right. inferior guards are just getting amazing looks every time down the floor, right? And like, yeah. not that Jaw doesn't have that capability because he does, but I think that Golden State's going to be more equipped. As, now, that will be something as the series goes along that becomes an advantage for them. As the smarter team, I think they're yeah. going to be able to figure out more ways to slow Jaw down. So that is an interesting angle there. Well, you bring up the Jokic dynamic, and I mean, in terms of just making average or mediocre players around him look good and put them in exceptional positions to succeed, I mean, that's all that he's done all year and throughout last year once Jamal Murray got hurt is just elevate those guys. We've got another fake question here. Even in defeat, did Jokic shut the haters up with his performance in this series? Okay, quick follow-up question. Am I considered a hater? (laughs) No. So here's where I would classify you, Jason. I think you're a fair skeptic. I think your criticisms about, you know, having to go out and show that he doesn't have these weaknesses that can be exploited compared to other, like, all-time, you know, top five kind of players, I think that's fair. I don't think that you're a hater. I would say haters are people who would, like, argue that he... You know, certainly didn't deserve MVP, which you didn't do. I mean, he was your MVP. Or I saw Charles Barkley the other day didn't have him in his top 10 players. Like, people who I think disregard the context (sighs) and just blindly make anti-Jokic arguments. I don't think you fall into that category. But I would hope they would have shut that down. No, I mean, I've always... I've I've had the respect, the requisite respect of Jokic ever since that Clippers series. And like... Again, and you you guys know how much I value playmaking. Like I think he's in that like exclusive echelon of the top four playmakers in the league, you know, with CP3, Luca, and LeBron. And I have a, a great deal of respect for that specific skill. So like my I, my thing is like I'm kind of sick of this conversation. The and I'm, I'm not I'm not talking about like the question. I mean like the que- the the conversation surrounding like Jokic is a floor raiser. Like I'm kind of sick of that. Like I'm ready to see. Jamal Murray come back, Michael Porter Jr. come back, and to see this team with some real expectations and see what that looks like. And I want to mm-hmm. see, because part of the issue here is Jokic keeps losing in the first round because his team is hurt. Although last year, I guess he did beat that Portland Trailblazers team, but then he went out yeah. feebly against Phoenix. So it's like, part of me is like, I want to see, I want to see Jokic go on a real playoff run like this. Now, again, yeah. the, the, you saw the Lakers give him some issues in the bubble with like throwing Dwight Howard at him and Anthony Davis had some success against him. They were attacking him on the defensive end as well, although the Lakers didn't quite have the personnel to get him out of the paint enough. But like, I'm just, I'm ready to see the next challenge for Jokic. Like I've already known that he can raise the floor. I've already known that he can keep a team relatively competitive against a team like the Warriors when he has inferior talent. Like I've already seen all of that. So like, to me, there's nothing really new from Jokic in here. I would, 
And at this point, like the Barkley types and the guys that don't have him in their top 10, like they're beyond saving. Like they're, yeah. they're not, right. they're either not watching enough basketball or they're deliberately not paying attention to what they're seeing. It's just to me, those guys are kind of like uh, nefarious characters in terms of actually trying to talk basketball. Yeah, I agree. I would put absolutely zero stock into that. I think that this does not change my opinion of Jokic whatsoever because I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, if you've watched the guy play a lot of basketball, there's never been a doubt about his ability to raise an offensive ceiling. And I think that, I mean, his postseason production is pretty ridiculous throughout his career. He's consistently elevated his raw production and he was 31 13 and six in this series on almost 58% shooting from the field. Insane. Let me ask you this then. I think Jokic is the best offensive player on the planet. I think that your defensive criticism is fair. I think maybe at times I've underrated that. What's your reaction to that? I'll make the case, but just gut instinct. What do you think? So the ability to thrive in any sort of individual coverage, but also have the ability to play make at such a high level, I think automatically puts you in that conversation. I am always going to go towards, man, the hard part is, is like my brain wants to go to like LeBron or a Steph, but they're both aging. So like, I want to grandfather the two of them above Jokic in that conversation, but I could totally see why you'd put Jokic on that level. My thing, the reason why I always have thought of LeBron as the best offensive engine in basketball is because of yeah. the diversity of his attack, uh, the diversity of his attack. Mm -hmm. Like LeBron just, yeah. if you're giving him issues on one spot of the floor, he's just going to a different spot of the floor and he can thrive there as well. He can do, he has a face-up yeah. game. He's got a post-up game. He's got, a, a, a live dribble game. He can work at a pick and roll. He can work at isolation. He can score from all three levels. Like that to me in conjunction with his playmaking kind of gives him an extra level of versatility, but it's, and it's hard for me to bump LeBron off that spot after he had yet another kind of magnificent offensive season on a garbage team where they were loading up on him just about every single time he had the basketball. But like, I totally see why Jokic is in the running there. But again, it's like yeah. I I want to see him go on a long playoff run where he has some ceiling raising potential with a good team before I kind of bump mm -hmm. him to the top of that list. But I'm not I'm not going to poo-poo your idea here at all. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Another thing that I would say is a dynamic with LeBron that I think has always given him an advantage comparatively over guys like Steph to me is the physical imposition element where you know if things aren't going right from with his jump shot or what have you i mean just brutal just run him over dominance i think yeah just run him over every time i think is really impressive i just think you know the production with Jokic is totally historically unprecedented the efficiency is totally historically unprecedented i do think the versatility is also pretty unreal i mean he does everything you know he is curling around screens he is rolling and popping he's dominating out of the post he's pushing in transition like i think he is really in a class of his own in terms of his ability to just play all these different roles on offense i agree with you lebron also has you know incredible versatility but i just think the guy is really really something else and purely in terms of offense i do think he's the best i think he also for me, might be the best player overall in the world i know you're not gonna like that take oh <laughs> And I do have, obviously, some of the same defensive issues. I do, at times, though, just think the offense is overwhelming enough to where it's like, I don't know.
Everybody has their flaws. Giannis, the half-court offense, is a flaw. KD, I just don't think, compares as an overall offensive engine. Any, and, you know, there's a bunch of guys you can throw into that conversation. Steph, I don't that think That conversation is super complicated now. Like It is. The, I, I can't wait to, after the season, kind of get in more into the weeds of this with you because, like... The truth of yeah. the matter is, is like it's so up in the air for me because I did I had Giannis at like third overall yeah. behind LeBron and KD coming into this run, and and I I don't want to just be like Giannis is the best because I think he's going to struggle against Boston. So like I'm really curious to see that like this is like this whole NBA hierarchy is like a snow globe that just got like shook like a hundred times, and like I'm just yeah. really curious to see where it all lands in the next month and a half. You know, unequivocally. I mean, I cannot remember a time in my brief yet beautiful life that there have been remotely this many guys in the best <laughs> player in the world conversation, like not even close, you know, it's been so consensus for the most, or maybe one or two challengers. So it is really fun and mm -hmm. interesting. All right. Last question here, Jason. It's another fake one. We talked a little bit about Charles Barkley. He called Kevin Durant a bus rider. You reacted to those remarks. When do you think the last time was that Charles Barkley rode a bus? Okay, like literally or the NBA yeah. version? <laughs> when was the last time that Charles Barkley literally rode a bus? Oh, man. I'm going to go with like 1992 in Europe or wherever it was that the Dream Team yeah. went. That's going to be my guess. Wait, wait. Are we counting like charter bus to the arena? Because if that's the case, it's probably happened on a road trip. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to say no. I don't think that counts as a bus. Okay. Like I public mean, bus, maybe Europe for the dream team, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Was he on the 96 Olympics team? I don't know. I have no idea. That's a really good question. No, I think he was dealing with some injuries at that point in his career. So I doubt it because mm -hmm. yeah. things went downhill fast for Chuck after he left Phoenix. Right. Well, 96 is when he actually went to Houston, right? And then he mm -hmm. was 96, 97. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's been a very long time. And honestly, 92, I mean, would there have been a ton of reason for him to be on a public bus? It might go back further than that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think I, I don't know. I think Chuck has High been school? living on his Yeah, man. Well, I don't know. Maybe college. I mean, I think he's been living on his palace of Krispy Kreme donuts for quite some time. That <laughs> dude, so, Charles Charles and Stephen A. Smith, the two of those guys, the clip that they unloaded this last week, it's like Oh man. And you know me, like I try so hard to avoid some of that stuff, but I have to, yeah. to a certain extent, because there is like, you have to levy some legitimate criticism on some of these guys. Like, I mean, KD, like KD's always been one of my favorite players. I thought he was the best player in the world coming into this playoff run. And like, he had a really bad series. Like I can't just sit there yeah. and lie about that, even though I'm a KD fan, you know? So it's like, you got to be honest about these kinds of things. But I'm like, man, Stephen A. Smith and Charles Barkley just went for the jugular over this, this last week. And they're as performative, like, take artists. They're, they're unparalleled. And yeah. so, like, when the two of them get on a roll like that, it's a sight to behold, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was a lot of talk of everybody just the next time that either one of them would get in front of a mic because they knew what was coming. Apparently Barkley was on the 96 team. So maybe that's maybe that's a candidate. Really? That's super interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your support as always. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on the Volumes YouTube channel. Don't forget, I also do video breakdowns of almost every game that I watch. So follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you can get some video content to back up the things that I am saying. 
We will be back tomorrow night, not with a live show because we're doing some NFL draft stuff with the live element of, of things, but I'm still going to be recording reaction videos to all three games. So just stay tuned to the Volumes YouTube page and you will see those videos there. And then we will take our usual Friday, Saturday off and we'll be back on Sunday breaking down what's going to be an unbelievably incredible first round or a first game of the second round. I appreciate your guys' support sincerely from the bottom of my heart and I will see you guys tomorrow. volume Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This'll never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Save the tagline. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zinn.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zinn. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.